Uh, we're going to look this morning at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and um, particularly at chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, that's page 1816, 1816 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> and um, I also just want to look at um, chapter 2, verse 10. So if you found that letter, 2, verse 10, where Paul um, simply writes this. This is about... Um, <clears throat> kind of a synod, a gathering of church leaders in Jerusalem. And he, he uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this in the message, but he ends that conversation by saying, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And uh, we'll try and tie that in later, but then if you look at chapter 6, he, uh, we're close to the conclusion of this letter, and in verse 9, he writes to the church, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends in Jesus Christ, most of us have experienced weariness at one time or another in our lives. Lots of things tend to make us weary. Monotony can make us weary doing the same thing, the same job perhaps, day after day after day. Boring conversations can make us weary when they're too one-sided to really be called a conversation at all. Math problems can make us weary. Um, you know the type, right? Danny left Kansas City on a train and, and headed east at 50 miles an hour. And Betty uh, left Philadelphia traveling on a train 75 miles an hour. When will they and where will they actually meet um, when they meet in Arizona for the Super Bowl? Those kinds of math problems. And then there are issues of justice that make us weary. Why do some people have so much lead in their drinking water that it's not healthy, that their brains are not developing the way that they should be, and not everyone is rushing to help? Um, just this week, we saw another headline that black Americans are three to five times more likely to be audited by the IRS than other taxpayers. If you're a black American taxpayer, things like that make you weary. But you don't have to be black for those kinds of stories to make you weary. You just have to care about justice. And you wonder, when will justice ever roll down like a mighty flowing river? Do not grow weary in doing good, Paul writes to the church of Christ. I want to talk this morning a little bit about the kinds of things that tend to make us weary especially in our service to Christ and our pursuing of justice, the kinds of things that make us weary and, and how we can begin to navigate perhaps our way through some of those things. But first, whenever we talk about justice, I think in the church, especially in this day and age, we have to begin with some definitions. 
definitions about what justice really is. And so let's try and define that term, justice, um, especially biblical justice. Many of us here in North America, when we think of justice, we think in terms of retributive justice or what's often called criminal justice, right? In fact, we actually have a criminal justice system, and it's all about punishing crime and deterring evildoers. And those things are indeed important for a society, for everyone to feel safe, for everyone to live at peace with one another. We need that kind of justice as a society. But when the Bible refers to justice, it's more commonly interested in something that we might call this morning distributive justice, which is more about fairness and and flourishing for everyone. So when we hear the Old Testament prophet Amos declare those words I just mentioned, let justice roll on like a mighty river and righteousness like a never-failing stream, we have to understand what he is actually saying. As Nick Waltersdorf once said, Amos didn't mean let police forces expand and prisons proliferate, excuse me, and criminals get exactly what they have coming. No, what Amos meant is something more like let everyone share in the good things that God meant for them when he created them. Let me say that again. Let everyone share in the good things that God meant for them when He created them. Let's start with this basic idea of of fairness, that we all deserve something good, that God intended something good for all of us. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again because you can tell it deeply impacted me. Um, When when we were... uh, just starting out in life, our kids were young, our two boys were young. We would take camping trips a lot, right? So we would drive out east, we would drive out west, we would drive just about every direction, pulling this little pop-up camper behind us, and, and I like to drive, and we wanted to get to a place, so we would drive hours and hours and hours in a day. And Jackie always packed, you know, kind of a cold lunch for us, sandwiches and stuff like that, <clears throat> which, you know, we're, we were appreciative of, but not totally thrilled with. Every couple of times on that trip, we would, we would splurge and we would stop at McDonald's, all right? And the whole idea behind stopping at McDonald's, the whole thrill of it was in the summers or in the spring, I don't know when it was, but we would always have, they would have the Monopoly game, right? And our boys were convinced that one of these times they were going to pull Park Place and they were going to win the million dollars, And when we got back into the van after McDonald's, there would be this feeling of devastation because once again, we did not win the million dollars. Huge letdown, right? Well, if you're aware of this, I don't know, but a couple of years ago, um, HBO came out with a series on that McDonald's Monopoly game, and it came out that the whole thing was rigged. Um, Not rigged by McDonald's, it was rigged by their marketing firm, but there was no chance for us to actually win. And I was devastated by that. It's not fair, right? And I could hear collectively everyone in the United States saying the same thing. It's not fair. We played that game with good intentions, and it was rigged. We never had a chance, right? And that's exactly how a lot of people feel about life. 
that it's not fair, that it's rigged, that the cards are stacked against us that we never had a chance. Most of us know that feeling. It seems ingrained in our hearts and our souls that we want to be treated fairly, right? I mean, how many of us as parents ride home from the basketball game or whatever and thinking my daughter or my son, they didn't get adequate playing time, right? And you're thinking all these scenarios of what you could tell the coach, how you could break it to her that she's not being fair, and which of, us, or which of us as a child hasn't said, you know, you look at your brother and sister older, their, their bedtime is 10 and yours is 8, maybe even 7. And what do you whine to your parents? It's not fair. We have this feeling inside of us somewhere deep that, that we want to be treated fairly. And that idea of fairness is sort of a, a window into the understanding of biblical justice. But it's just a window because, because justice is not only wanting what's fair for ourselves, but it's, it's wanting what's fair for others. Okay? Justice is about wanting everyone to share in the good things that God intended for them. Right? It's not just wanting a good education for your own children. It's wanting a good, strong education for all the children. It's not just wanting a, a safe park where your kids can play in your own neighborhood, in your own backyard. It's, it's wanting a safe park where every child can go play. That's, that's sort of the biblical idea of justice, and that's what we'll call distributive justice this morning. Now, now where does that desire come from? Where does that desire come from that, that not only I get to share in God's good gifts, but, but that everyone should share in God's good gifts? Where does that desire come from? And the answer is, especially for Christians, that desire comes from God. It comes directly from God, and it's stimulated by His grace. Okay? It comes from God. It's stimulated by His grace. Friends, how is it that we even know what's right, what's just? How do we know those things? Well, we know it from God, right? We know it from God, from the character and the righteousness of our God. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you find these two things paired up all the time, righteousness and justice, the righteousness of God and the justice of God. In fact, in the New Testament, they, they become so closely knit that the same Greek word is used for both of them, okay? Justice and righteousness, it's really the exact same word. We know justice because we know God. We know His righteousness. God is, is like our straight edge, right? And we can only know what's straight. We can only know what's right and what's just by holding it up and comparing it next to God. That's how we know. Think of the words of Jeremiah 9. Okay, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. You always love a text and you perk up a little bit when you read those words. Thus says the Lord. And this is what he says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands 
and knows me. What are you supposed to know and understand? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God says here, look, if you understand me, if you know me, then you will understand justice. But only then. Only when you know me and understand me will you truly understand what justice is. What's the flip side of that? The flip side is if you don't know God, if you don't understand God, you're not going to understand justice. You just can't. Is that true? Let's explore that a little bit. Let's, let's ask the question, is, is God fair in all His demands? The truth is that God is often accused, even within the church, of being unfair, isn't He? Especially when it comes to justice. In fact, many people seem to believe that God plays favorites, and that's not fair. Why? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God associates Himself so very closely with, with four groups of people. Over and over and over, you read it. The widows, the orphans, the alien, often the alien within your gates, and the poor. Those four groups. So closely does He associate Himself that He says things like, If you love Me, then you will take care of the poor. If you love Me, you will take care of the poor. So closely that it's often said that God has a very special place in His heart for these groups of people, these, these folks in particular. And that's where people like us begin to object. And we say, we say things like, well, that's not fair. Doesn't God love all people alike? Doesn't God love happily married people just as much as He loves widows? Doesn't God love rich people just as much as He loves poor people? And this, friends, is where we have to remind ourselves again that, that we don't know justice apart from God, apart from the straight edge. And we don't accept justice apart from His grace. You see, grace, grace changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, grace changes how we look at God, grace changes how we look at ourselves, grace changes how we look at other people. Friends, the idea of fairness kind of goes out the window when you truly experience the grace of God. Fairness. I mean, there's nothing fair about grace whatsoever, is there? What grace means is that in Jesus Christ, sinners like us, we get God's mercy. We get to receive God's mercy while Jesus gets what we deserve. He gets our punishment. Is that fair? <laughs> no way. But is God just? He's perfectly just. He's just because He takes our punishment on Himself. So the sins are still punished but he takes that punishment himself. Is it fair? No. Is it just? Yes. So before we accuse, of being, or accuse God of being unfair because he seems to favor the, 
the poor or the widow or the orphan, I think we need to think twice about what it would mean if God were perfectly fair with us instead of gracious with us. And, and I think then standing on this side of grace helps us to understand just a little more clearly the mind of God and what justice is, true justice, and actually begin to desire that true justice. What I mean is, is you know, sometimes we think things like this. Well, poor people and aliens, um, they're not the only ones who experience injustice in this life. I mean, sometimes, sometimes powerful people and wealthy people, we experience injustice as well, right? I mean, my Hyundai can get stolen just as much as anybody's Hyundai can get stolen. And, and my house can get burglarized. doesn't matter where my house is. could be in the suburbs, could be wherever. That can get burglarized too. My identity might get stolen. I mean, I could lose a lot of money, right? My, my IRA could go way down. I could lose the whole thing. That's, that's not just. That's injustice too. And again, Nick Waltersdorf helps us here. I know he helped me a lot with this. He says that it's true that all of us experience injustice in life. All of us do. But then he goes on to explain that while some of us experience episodes of injustice, in other words, we experience injustice here and there, I might experience injustice this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. There are some of us who experience those episodes of injustice while there are others who are always vulnerable. They live in daily conditions of injustice and threats of injustice. It's always there. It's, it's, the, it's the air that they breathe. It's the atmosphere that they live in. It's not just an episode here or there. And people who have experienced grace, we can, we can distinguish, we can see the difference between those kinds of things. Suddenly when God says, I love justice and I want justice to flow like a mighty river to all the neglected people who need to experience it, that doesn't seem so unfair. All of a sudden it seems like a beautiful thing, a right thing, a good thing. It's interesting. Um, we read that verse from Galatians chapter 2. Well, what's happening is Paul is reporting there, I said, on this big, big meeting about biblical theology, what the gospel really means at its roots. And they all got together. All the bigwigs in the church got together in Jerusalem, and they had to talk it out because, you know, Paul was uh, evangelizing to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, and Peter was, was evangelizing to the Jews. And there was a group of people who were saying to the Gentiles, to those that Paul was working with in particular, that they didn't just have to believe in Jesus to be saved, but they had to become more like the Jews. 
And so they had to take on the Jewish regulations, right? They had to take on the dietary laws. They had to be circumcised. They had to start obeying the Sabbath. And they talked about these things, and they talked about these things. And where they came down was, no way. We have freedom in Christ, and we are not going to add anything to the gospel for the Gentiles. They don't have to do anything more than believe in their Savior, Jesus Christ, to save them from their sins. And Paul is reporting this to the Galatians, to this church full of Gentiles, and then he says, oh, and they added one thing, and that is, by the way, keep taking care of the poor. And Paul says, and that's exactly what I wanted to do. Now, why didn't Paul say, hey, you're just adding one more thing to the gospel. You just said you weren't going to do that, but now you say, well, if you want to be saved, you have to take care of the poor. And Paul says, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we are saved by the gospel. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And when we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ, what happens? Jesus Christ himself, the righteous one, the just one, comes inside of us and begins to live in us. And the character of God is in us. The straight edge is right there. And what do we realize? What do we know coming out of that gift, out of that process? We know that we need to take care of the poor and the widow and the alien and the orphan. Paul says it right there. They all come together. They're like a package. They're like a package. Why was Paul so eager to remember the poor? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about God, the righteous one, being in us. That's where we get the desire, okay, to love and to serve the poor and to seek justice. Now, with those things in mind, I just want to go back to this idea of weariness. And what are the kinds of things that make us weary in doing good? What makes us weary in seeking justice for the peoples of the world? Let me just lay out a few things here, and some of these things come from a book called The Justice Calling by Bethany Wong and, and Kristen Johnson. First of all, we get weary in doing good when our motivation is wrong, when we have the wrong motivation. Remember those old bracelets we kind of used to hand them out like candy in the church? Uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we said, if you just wonder what would Jesus do, we're going to change the world. And we didn't change the world. You see, if that's our only motivation, the example of Jesus, we're never going to do anything. Well, we'll do a little bit, but then we're going to run out of energy and we're going to run out of gas. Why? Because the obstacles in this world are just too great and the darkness is just too deep. I mean, if you want to free women who are being trafficked and then you want to help them back to emotional and psychological health, you're going to need more motivation than simply the example of Jesus. If you want to fix public education so that everyone has access to a great education, you're going to need more than just the example of Jesus. What you're going to need is Jesus himself living in you, the straight edge, the righteous one. It's his work. It's not ours. It's his work, first of all. Our work grows out of that. We cannot create justice on our own, and we can't create it 
just by following a good example. Second, we can't work alone. We can't work alone. Notice how all of Paul's commands in these two verses, they're all in the plural. Let us not become weary. We need each other in this task. In the Justice Calling, authors point out that, that or how many of us in the West today are shaped by the superhero kinds of story, right? Spider-Man and Superman and Wonder Woman. And what do these people do? They see injustice and they kind of fly in and it's a momentary thing and if they get there just in time and and you know everything all the conditions are right they can save the train from going off the bridge and into the gully but that's a lot of pressure i mean if that's who you are and you think well i'm going to save the world by diving into these situations and if i get there at just the right time and if i say just the right thing i'm going to save the world I don't want to break it to you too harshly, but it's not going to happen. No one can bear that kind of weight. And that's why, that's why when God and Jesus, His Son, call us into these tasks, they call the church into these tasks. They call us into these things together. They call the saints. We are saints. We're not superheroes. We are saints who've been blessed with the holiness of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we are saints who are filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with gratitude for everything that Jesus has done for us, and together, together we serve to change the conditions of this world. So, so what do we do as a church? Well, you can start by joining other organizations who are already doing this kind of work. Join with fellow believers who are at work in these things. Join with people like Community Warehouse. Join with Exploit No More and Safe Families and One Maker and Partners Worldwide. And the list goes on and on just within our church of people that we can partner with. And something wonderful happens when we as a church begin to do things together because we can, we can help each other. We can also critique each other. You know, if something's not working, and this goes on far too much in the Christian world, we have, we have some organizations that are trying to do the work, but it's just not working and no one ever stands up and says, maybe we're doing this the wrong way. Maybe we need to think of something better. And we need to rely on all the gifts of the church. Kurt Verbeek works with ASJ in Honduras. It's another one of those organizations that we support. He talks about how all the gifts of the church are necessary to do the work. For instance, he says, we tried to change the system of education in Honduras, right? And kids just weren't being educated. They weren't being educated. So what did we do? Instead of just buying notebooks and giving kids backpacks, what we began to do is explore why aren't these children being educated? And they found out that kids were only going to school about 150 days out of the year. That's all the school was open. And the teachers were there. Maybe a few more days than that on average. And so they began to dive into that, and people with different gifts went to the head of the leader of education in the whole country and said, this is not right. These schools need to be open more. These teachers need to be there more. And we expect excellence. 
If you expect excellence in your business, you put your work into that, you put your mind into that, why can't we do the same thing with mission causes and justice causes? Friends, we have to do these things together. Which leads to another source of weariness, and that's when the people who should be helping aren't. When the people who should be helping us aren't. Picture a a mops kind of group, okay? Um, Young moms, mentors. The topic for the day was organizing your life. Organizing your life. And after hearing all of these organizing tips, one of the young moms, she went to her mentor and she said, but how do you get your kids to help with all of these things? She says, I have, I have two children, and it's usually just easier for me to do everything by myself. I mean, everything gets in the right place. I know where it is. It's just much smoother, but at the same time, I'm frustrated that my child isn't helping, and they're not learning anything. They're not getting any better at this. And her mentor responds this way. She says, well, you know, in our house, we use something that's called a butler box. A butler box. And whenever something is left lying around in the house, if I find it, it goes in the box. And before anyone can get it out, wallet, keys, whatever it is, before anyone can get it out, they have to work around the house for at least five, ten minutes, something like that. And then they're allowed to get that object back. The young mom says, that's a pretty clever idea. How old were your children when you actually started that? The mentor says, children? Uh, We don't have any children. I'm talking about my husband. Spouse is usually the one you expect is going to be helping. That's a fair expectation. Friends, it can be exhausting, even wearying, when people who should be at our sides in doing good, they're not carrying the load. And questions start to arise, right? Why should I do this if no one else is doing it? Don't others see the needs? Or are they just really good at ignoring them? Am I the only one who cares? Those are wearying questions. Again, we need each other. Kind of challenge each other. Help each other. Say, why don't you come with me? There's, there's something else that can help us to understand in those situations, and that is that the process of sanctification is a long process. Think about the story of John Newton. You know John Newton, right? Um, he's the guy who wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Right? We sang it last Sunday. John Newton was also a human trafficker. He was a slave trader. Took slaves on his ships, Um, transported them, not a good guy. And a lot of us think, oh, well, when he met Christ, everything changed, right? It was kind of like on the dime. He accepted Jesus and kind of said, hey, turn the ships around. We're going back to Africa. We're going to let everybody off. Well, that would be nice, but that's, that's not what happened at all. I mean, it took him a long, long time before he began to connect his, his new faith, his new trust in Jesus with the work that he was doing. 
And then you know the story with William Wilberforce and changing the slave trades and all of that. But it didn't happen overnight. It took forever. And friends, that's just, it's just the case so often in the church, and it can be discouraging. Think of just the story in Galatians, right? I mean, if you know Galatians, you know this is where Paul gets on Peter's back for Peter's not eating with the Gentiles. He's discriminating against the Gentiles. And, and, and Paul has to confront him and say, Peter, you of all people, I mean, you're the one who had the dream, right? In Acts 10 and 11, read about it. You ate with Cornelius because God said, Peter, eat with Cornelius. All foods are clean now, and therefore all people are clean. You've got to eat with Cornelius. And Peter sees the Holy Spirit descend on him, and now Peter won't eat with the Gentiles again. And Paul has to correct him, and that had to hurt Peter, but it had to hurt Paul just as much. He had to be thinking, why do I have to correct Peter of all people? Why doesn't he get this? And the answer is because sometimes sanctification just, it's a long process. It's too long a process. And that can make us weary. When we're expecting more from each other and it's just not happening. But we have to remember that whether it's me or someone else, if we're not where we think we should be, if our church is not where we think we should be, we have to remember that the Holy Spirit is still at work in us. He hasn't given up. And He can change us, just like He changed John Newton, just like He changed Peter. He can change us as well. He can change me. He can change you. One last thing that can make us weary And that is we lose sight of the harvest. Okay, Paul writes, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. At the proper time. And the word he uses there is kairos. Okay? If we were farmers, I think we would probably get Paul's point here a little more easily. Because farmers know that the value of the harvest is always greater than the cost of the seed. I'll say it again, the value of the harvest is always greater than the cost of the seed. Farmers know that. You and I tend to count or look too closely, focus too much on the cost of the seed. And I admit that that's high, especially when we're talking about justice sorts of issues. We get emotionally caught up with people whose lives are very unstable, very broken, and their distresses become our distresses. You cut yourself off from options that, that you could have pursued if not for these relationships that you've gotten yourself involved in. You have less money because now you're giving generously to all sorts of people and all sorts of causes. The costs are great. But Paul says the harvest is even greater. When you see people that you've come to love, you heard some of this this morning, People you've come to love and you see them sharing in the good things that God intended for them from the very start, it's worth the cost. It's worth the cost. But Paul wasn't just thinking about the harvest in this life, was he? He's thinking about the harvest in the life to come. As I said, Paul refers to this this idea of time twice in these two verses. A time for the harvest. And as we have opportunity... 
the word he uses here is not chronos. It's not clock time. It's the word kairos. And kairos is a different kind of time. It's time that's been filled with meaning. Okay, it's, it's leading to something. It's leading to somewhere. For instance, it's not just 2 p.m. Friday afternoon, but it's, it's 2 p.m. Friday afternoon when I have tickets to the Bucks celtics game that night. And all of a sudden, 2 p.m. on Friday afternoon means something different, right? It's headed somewhere. And kairos is, is time in light of the day of judgment, in the day of Christ's return, the day when he will be proclaimed King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will set everything right. And Paul says, therefore, let us do good whenever we have time, whenever we have opportunity, let us do good. And what he's saying is on the one hand, yes, we can't do it all. You have to do it as you have opportunity. You can't do it all. But he's not saying you can't do anything. What he's saying is not, hey, if you have Wednesday nights free, you might want to consider doing this. What he's saying is, now that you see time in the light of the harvest, then make good use of your Wednesday nights and all your time. Make good use because you know what's coming. Remember the harvest. Remember that day that Jesus is going to stand upon the earth and he will say, it is done it is done. And to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost. Remember the harvest. Remember that day that will show that the cost of the seed simply isn't anything close to the joy of the harvest that we will have celebrating with all of God's people once and for all who get to enjoy all the blessings that were meant for them from the beginning. Don't lose sight of the harvest, and friends, don't grow weary in doing good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you can keep us from weariness. Remind us again and again of the grace by which you saved us. You did the work, we did not. Teach us about grace over and over and work in us the character of God himself and keep us from weariness, Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.